Thank you, uh, Pastor Justin and staff, for your uh, warm welcome for me this morning. Glad I can be here. Um, this is, feels like uh, my home church, a church uh, where I know many of you. Some of you maybe were Sunday school teachers or took care of me in the nursery or uh, encouraged me in those early days of seminary when I inflicted you with those uh, early sermons. I give uh, greetings, I extend greetings to you from your sisters and brothers in Christ at Trinity Christian Reformed Church in Rock Valley. I realize that uh, most of you probably don't know most of them and vice versa, but I assure you that uh, God is at work there as he is at work here, and I extend uh, greetings to you uh, from the saints there in Rock Valley. I'm glad I can be here this morning. I chose the text to read and spend some time reflecting on with you, Matthew chapter 21. I'd like to look at Matthew 21. We're going to begin at verse 28. It's one of the stories uh, that Jesus told. Um, maybe some parts of it are familiar, often with Jesus' stories. There's also kind of a surprise, and you're wondering, what on earth is going on here? And this story doesn't disappoint. What do you think, Jesus asks? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted. The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to, show ahead of, uh, to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Will you pray with me? Loving God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we believe that your Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle, the, the Apostle Matthew to recall these words of Jesus and accurately write them down for the church in his day and for the church today around the world. We pray that uh, by that same Holy Spirit, you will speak to us. We pray for open hearts and open minds and open hands and feet that are ready to go and for us to do uh, what you call us to do and to be the people who you call us to be as we reflect on this, uh, your text, your word for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It occurs to me that of the countless ways that people can let us down, it, it really hurts when they say they're going to do something but then they end up backing out and not doing it. It's especially painful when you really needed them to do the thing that they said they were going to do. Family members at a funeral hear friends pledge to them that they'll stand with them in their grief. But a few short months later, few people phone or drop in anymore. Someone with a long-term illness receives promises for meals and for childcare. 
but the help ends up being minimal and inconsistent. Church staff hear a, a lot of enthusiasm for a new opportunity, a ministry to, to make a difference in the community and help build the kingdom of God. But the sign-up sheets remain empty. They say that a promise made is a debt unpaid. A promise made is a debt unpaid. And it hurts to be on the receiving end of an unkept promise. I have experienced that hurt, and I would suspect that many of you have experienced that as well. Someone says, I'll do this for you, and you look forward to it, and then they let you down. And I am also certain that there have been times when I promised someone to do something and then didn't because I forgot or maybe just because I chose not to because you know what, it was kind of hard and, and awkward and, and in the end, you know, I just didn't really feel like it and I'm certain that each of us can confess to things like that too. Thankfully, Thankfully, there are times when people surprise us and help us out. People, who, uh, we, people who, who we didn't know who cared. People who didn't know what was going on. People who didn't sign up, but yet they still come. And they come anyway, and they surprise us, and they shower us with blessings. I pray that there have been times, and will continue to be times, where, where God uses me like that. Surprising people and in unexpected ways, with, a, with an encouraging word or, or a way that I can help them, even if it is unexpected. Friends, this is getting at the gist of Jesus' parable for us this morning. The father in Jesus' story has two sons, and they both give us a picture of words not matching actions. Words and actions being two separate things. The father has a vineyard. And it turns out that in Old Testament prophecy and in many of Jesus' stories, a vineyard regularly symbolizes the people of God. If you see a reference to a vineyard in prophecy or in Jesus' teachings, is probably a symbol of the people of God. What happens in the vineyards of Jesus' parables parallels what's happening in the hearts and the minds and the, the customs and the institutions of God's people. Now, both sons in Jesus' parable this morning give their father an answer, but their words do not match their actions. What they say doesn't match what's in their hearts. Son, go work today in the vineyard, says the father. No, I will not, replies the first son. Forget it, pop. I got other plans, things to do, people to see. Go pick your own stinking grapes. I'm not sure that we, as 21st century North Americans, fully appreciate the audacity of this son's response to his father. For a son in 1st century Palestine to 
refuse his father in this way was a very dishonorable, very shameful thing to do. That would put his whole family in a bad light in the eyes of everyone else in the town. He was bringing shame on his parents and on his family and maybe even on his entire town. Shameful. Well, thankfully, the second son has a much more favorable response, the kind of response that parents expect to hear when they give their children directions. I will, sir, says the second son. You got it, Dad. I'm on my way. The father walks away from this exchange feeling good that at least one of his boys knows how to treat his parents with respect. But both sons... Both sons end up surprising their father by what they actually end up doing. The son who tells his dad to take a hike changes his mind and indeed goes to work in the vineyard. Now there's a Greek word behind where you read in scripture, change his mind. Where you read in English, where we read in English, change his mind. There's a Greek word there. excuse me, that means regret or even repent. This son has a change of heart, reconsidering his duty, not, not even just his duty, but also even his relationship with his father. Meanwhile, the agreeable son The agreeable son does not go to the vineyard like he said he would. He said, I will, sir, but he doesn't. And so it appears, it appears that there is a good relationship between the second son and his father. But it turns out that it's all show and no substance. It only looks good from the outside, but there's nothing else. Jesus ends his parable by asking his listeners, the chief priests and the elders, the the religious authorities of his day, Jesus asks them, okay, which of the two sons did what the father asked? Well, obviously, the first son did what the father asked. And this parable is rightly a lesson on doing what is right and not merely talking about it. In this parable, we hear Jesus calling his 1st century and 21st century listeners to do both well. To do both well. That both our words and our actions align with his will. Jesus' 1st century listeners, well, they're the religious authorities. They know God's word. They know God's laws. They know God's will. And yet, yet they reject Jesus, God in the flesh, present with them. They're like the second son. They're like the second son. They they know the right things to say. But they refuse to believe in Jesus. Oh, they're religious, very religious. But there's no relationship. There's no relationship with God. They they ignore the Father's presence in, in God the Son standing right there in front of them. 
All religion, no relationship. Oh, they give the appearance of serving God. Oh, they look right. They follow all the picky religious rules about about what they can eat and what they can drink and what they should wear and how they should say their prayers. They look and they sound really religious that they got their acts together. Oh, they look good. But when it comes to issues like loving your neighbor as yourself or showing uh, kindness to the poor or compassion to the lowly, they never show up in the vineyard. Their religion, their religion is very impressive when they're at church, but they do not live it out in their daily lives. So Jesus, <laughs> Jesus really lets the hammer fall on them. Truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Ouch. Why are the tax collectors and prostitutes, those who stand for the lowest members of Jewish society, why are the tax collectors and prostitutes getting in ahead of the respectable religious authorities? Well, because, as Jesus says, they believed and responded to John the Baptist. And now they believe and follow Jesus. They're like the first son. They're like the first son who, by all appearances, was rebellious and had everything going against him. But it turns out, it turns out that it's these least likely of people who end up repenting and having a relationship with Jesus, while the religious elite reject Jesus, despite looking good and knowing all the right things to say. Oh, the religious people who should have known better refuse the grace available for all who know and love Jesus. Jesus uses strong words against the religious authorities to make it clear how he prefers friendship over formality. Oh, he desires relationship. Relationship over surfacy religion. Now, I want to be careful how I say this. Don't misquote me here. Oh, that guy from Iowa, you heard what he said? Careful what I'm not saying. Religion, listen carefully, religion is not a bad thing. That's not the message this morning. Religion is not a bad thing. On the contrary, religion is important because the Bible is full of religious practices that either point us to God or, or help find us in a channel of his blessings, blessings with him and, and with one another. But religion becomes worthless if we begin to think that those actions themselves are the most important thing. When we think that religion is singing songs and, and offering prayers and giving money, even studying the Bible, if we think that that's the main thing, well, then we have missed the point entirely. 
Oh yes, those things are good. They're very good. But only, only if they are an expression of the relationship that we have with Jesus and that Jesus has with us. So religion then can be kind of dangerous, not because it's bad, but because it's often good enough to turn our trust away from Jesus. Our tendency is to reject confidence in what Christ can do and replace it with something that we can do ourselves and feel good about, and we'll call that religion. What I do, what I can do, what I can drum up, that I will call religion instead of what Jesus has done for me. He puts it strongly, but I appreciate how Jefferson Bethke writes in his book, uh, Jesus is Greater Than Religion. It's quotes on the screen. He puts it strongly, but I like it. Religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion is us searching for God. Jesus is God searching for us. Religion is pursuing God by our moral efforts. Jesus is God pursuing us despite our moral efforts, or perhaps more accurately, often our moral failings. Religious people kill for what they believe. Jesus followers die for what they believe. What I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus didn't come to the earth to show us the Father's love and then suffer and die on the cross and then rise again on the third day only to make us religious people. That's much too small, much too narrow of a goal. No, friends, Jesus did these things so so that we can know him and love him and have a relationship with him and, and commune with him, including in a special way as we will be celebrating in a few minutes the Lord's Supper. It helps me to know, to remember, that Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He exists in a perfect, loving relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but that says to me that Jesus is an expert on good relationships. Hmm? He wants us to have a taste of what he perfectly experiences in the Trinity. That's what he wants us to experience when we know and love him. On another occasion, Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And then a few verses after that, he adds, he adds in the Holy Spirit, assuring his disciples, then and now with these words, you know him, the Spirit of truth, for he lives with you and will be in you. The perfect relationship that Jesus experiences within the Trinity is something that he wants to share with us. But this happens solely by grace. Our religious performance is not what gets us into a relationship with Jesus. It's turning our lives over 
to the one who turns our lives around and comes to live in us. And then, then if you really understand that your own salvation depends completely on that gift of grace, well, then you're only too happy to share this good news with anyone, anyone who will listen. You won't wait for other people to clean up their acts or become a bit more buttoned down like you are before, before you share the good news. You won't wait for anything before getting out into that vineyard of needy people who also need to know and love the Lord, ministering to them however you can. Think again with me for a moment about Jesus' words that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of the impressive-looking religious types. These most unlikely people are the ones who repent and choose to cling to Jesus, to know and follow him. So does it occur to you that when you say yes to God the Father in Christ Jesus, you are simultaneously saying yes to the least and the last and the lost and the lonely whom our Father dearly loves? But if you say yes to God and then focus only on your own piety or only on other people who are just as religious as you are and just look like me and talk like me and that's where I'll stay, thank you very much. Well, when we're like that, when you and I are like that, then we are essentially being like the other son who, who says all the right things when daddy asks but then who turns right around and does nothing that the father commanded. Sisters and brothers in Christ, the grace, the grace of God in Christ sets us free. When we receive it, the Holy Spirit changes us, changes us so that we say yes to God with both our words and our actions so that they match unlike the sons in Jesus' parable. This then impacts our relationships with others. We seek out the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely people, whether it's down in Mexicali or in downtown Abbotsford. And we seek those out who feel worthless or maybe just feel like they don't really belong. Even right here. They are in our homes, the places where we enjoy leisure time, and even in the fellowship hall after the service is over. You might be surprised who feels that way under your own roof or on second base at your softball game or even sitting right beside you or right in front of you or right behind you right now. Do you have eyes and ears open for them? Or are you just going to talk to the same people you always do in the fellowship hall? Or are you just going to hang out with the same kids on the playground? Or just pretend you don't see the hurt in the eyes of the person who shares a house with you? 
I don't know about here in Abbotsford. Yes, I do know here in Abbotsford. Here in Abbotsford or in Iowa or halfway around the world, regardless of where God's people gather, God knows and invites us to know that we are better together. Together with him, of course, and together with one another. We experience that union and unity both with him and with one another each day and also now in a special way as we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh, Jesus, life-giving Holy Spirit, uh, make sure that that happens. This is the same Holy Spirit who is working in you and me, guiding us so that learning from Jesus' parable, our words and our actions match in Christ-like love. That way, we share the grace that we've been shown, becoming channels of that grace to everyone God puts in our path, starting now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace that we receive abundantly from you. We confess that we're more often like the sons in your parable than we like to admit. Often our words or often our actions are empty, shallow, half-hearted, or non-existent altogether when they are needed. Forgive us, we pray. And lead and guide us by your Holy Spirit so that certainly our, our words and actions match, but even more so, that your grace flows through us. Stop us from putting a plug in your grace and plugging it up. Rather, open up our lives and our hearts, our hands and feet so that your grace flows like a river through us to the people around us, people like us, maybe people completely unlike us, with friends, maybe with enemies, with people who look like us, people who don't look like us, people who sound like us, people who don't sound like us. Work in us. And as you are a blessing to us, may we go and be a blessing to others. We thank you that we don't do this alone. We do this one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We also do this with you, your Holy Spirit at work in us in all sorts of different ways, but also now in a special way as you feed us with your grace, the bread and of the cup, filling our hearts, filling our souls, reminding us that we belong to you and that you propel us to go out strengthened and encouraged to serve and share your grace. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.